0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gauthier and is part 7 of our Lent 2016 series. At Res, people come from all sorts of different backgrounds. We have some people who are new to the faith, basically. Think of our Alpha program and things. This is all new. And there are other people who are raised in the church. The first thing they can remember is their mother or their dad reading Bible stories to them as a child. People are new. People have been raised in the faith. I've got to tell you, if you're new, church can be a little intimidating. See, there are lots of references to stories you've never heard, people you've never heard of with unpronounceable names, and worse, everybody else seems to get it. It's like they have a decoder ring or something. So it can be a little intimidating, but your ship has come in. Everything turns around this Sunday. You see, you saw right away when that gospel was read what a lot of church people don't see. So you're going to have to be patient with them, okay? If they seem a little confused, just nod and explain later on. So let's talk about the parable of the wicked tenants. Let's summarize it in modern terms. I call it the parable of the rental cottage. People rent a cottage, and they're not keen on the idea of paying rent. It's a hassle. So they ignore the bills. Again, they ignore the phone calls. And finally, the proprietor sends out one of his people to the place, and they won't answer the door. Sends somebody a second time. And what happens, they, enter the, they open the door this time, but they basically muscle him a little bit and shout insults at him, throw them out. The third time he sends an employee, he lets out the dogs. So finally, he says, look, what we'll do is I'll send my son. And the son comes to the door, and he shoots him. And he says, now I get to keep the cottage. Now, what single term best describes the story? This is crazy. This is utterly unbelievable, if you're missing the point. You can't do this, and for two different reasons, two very different reasons. And this, this, this unbelievability is no default. It's no defect. It's the key to understanding the whole story. If we don't understand why it's unbelievable, we'll miss the point of the story. OK, why is this story, for two very different reasons, unbelievable? The first reason is this. The tenants actually think they can keep the vineyard. This is not a plan. In our story with the cottage, if you shoot the sun, there'll be a SWAT team in 30 minutes. You don't get to keep the cottage. And let me tell you, if that's true today, the same thing was true in the ancient world. As Jesus says to them, what's going to happen after all of this? He says, they will come and destroy those tenants and give their vineyards to others. This was not a plan. It was stupid. What were they thinking? And the immediate application, we're told, is to the chief priests and scribes. God made beautiful promises to Abraham. He promised his descendants, Israel, were his special, dear to his heart to this very day, were dear to his heart. And he also said it wasn't just for Israel. Through the seed of Israel, there would be a Savior who would save the entire world. All the nations would be blessed through him. So it's for Israel, a blessing for Israel, a blessing for all the nations of the world. And the chief priests and scribes were in the position of actually protecting and implementing that promise. They were to be God's agent to realize God's promise, to make it come true, God's blessing for Israel, God's blessing for the nations. So what did they do? They decided it would be better just to keep it all for themselves and a small circle of people just like them. They created special rules that excluded most of the people of Israel. Most of them weren't up to their levels of holiness. Okay. And to show the contempt with which they held other Israelites, what did they say? In John 7, it says, this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. These are pastors talking about their flock. This crowd that doesn't know the law, they're accursed. Well, that's touching. And then we have, they dismiss those outside of Israel as just completely unclean. Remember, in Acts, it tells us that you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Where does it say that in the Torah? They made it up. So suddenly, people who were supposed to be custodians of a promise of blessing for all of Israel and all the nations had come to a very comfortable arrangement with just themselves and a few people just like them. So it was no surprise when the Son came, who was the living embodiment of these promises, they hated him. First of all, look at what Jesus constantly refers to the promise to Israel. There's a woman in a synagogue one day who had been bent over for 18 years, you know, with an affliction. Jesus heals her, and instead of rejoicing, they complain that he did this on the Sabbath. A person in suffering for 18 years, they're bothered, she's healed. What does Jesus specifically say? I love this. He says, ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham? Their whole duty was trustees, was to take care of the children of Abraham. He so said, This is a daughter of Abraham. Remember, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. People wrote him off, despite his obvious virtue and his short size. And they, they wrote him off. And Jesus won't write him off, and people criticize him. And what does he say when they criticize him? He says, He also is a son of Abraham. Your whole duty was to take care of the children of Abraham, and you simply dismiss them. And what about foreigners? He takes a Roman centurion, someone in the occupational army. Think of, for example, the occupied France, you know, a Nazi soldier of the occupation. He takes someone like that and does him a favor and cures, uh, you know, cures a servant for him. He makes a Samaritan. On the list of people the Pharisees did not like, these were the bottom. This was the bottom rung. There were all sorts of people they didn't like, but this was the bottom rung. He makes a Samaritan the hero of his parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, what's incredible then, again, unbelievable, they actually thought this could go on. They actually thought that they could get away with it. Now, what's our reality check? In 70 AD, the Roman armies come, and they burn the temple to the ground and end the whole regime. The Sadducees will be no more. There is no more temple. It's all gone. What were they thinking? That this could go on, they could get away with it, But before we get very smug, we like to get smug about the scribes and Pharisees, maybe we should look closer to home. Maybe there are some applications that apply specifically to us. What about the comfortable middle-class church? I grew up in it. A lot of us did. You know, we were entrusted. Jesus has a passion for souls, every last soul. He has a passion, and that's why he called the church, to share in that ministry. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. That's why there is a church. We share in Jesus' mission. Jesus said his last words were, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Those were our marching orders. What actually happened? We made the church a private club. It was about our programs, our needs. Little real interest in reaching out to people far from God. That really wasn't of interest to us. Did we really think that could go on forever. Did we really think we could get away with that? Well, we know the truth. We're surrounded by empty church buildings that are like tombstones reminding us of our unfaithfulness. All around. We're surrounded by a society which is only unchristian, it's anti-Christian. I wonder how that happened. But what about the nations of the post-Christian West? Our own nation, the nations of Europe. For 2,000 years, people have cherished the heritage that Christianity brought to us. The Christian faith has brought treasures that have made the West a very special place. The dignity of the individual. We cherish that every individual, that dignity. Human rights. Not something we concede to people, actual human rights. Love and relationship as being primary values rather than power and domination. And a passion for truth. These are brought to us by the faith. But we decided, as a society, that why don't we keep all the good stuff and get rid of the troublesome son? No, sir. Why don't we keep all the good stuff, he's done his work, and send him off, ceremoniously or unceremoniously? And that's what we've done. We've dechristianized. But I ask you, did we really think this could go on? Did we actually believe we could get away with it? reality check. We talk of the dignity of the individual. We're living in a sea of pornography. This is not a purity issue. This is a justice issue. These are our sisters, our daughters, and our mothers. The dignity of of the individual, a degree of coarseness in discourse and dealing with one another which is unimaginable. Well, so much for dignity of the individual. What about human rights that we're so passionate about Well, human rights if you're not vulnerable and inconvenient. Isn't it the story of the unwanted young, the unborn? The story of the disabled and the elderly with abortion and euthanasia? Human rights, I guess, for some. What about love and relationship as being primary values? Sometimes commitment seems to have just disappeared. We're filled with a world of disposable spouses and children. And what about the quest for truth? People actually think it's sophisticated to deny the truth exists. They're like Pontius Pilate. What's truth? They They replace actual facts with personal narratives. But these are corporate. What about us individually? All of us living in a modern consumer society. We're made in the image of God. God is love. And the essence of love is to give. That's why God created the world. He shares. Love shares. It's outgoing. We were made to be givers. And actually, we become con- professional consumers. We're takers, not givers. We're actually, our lives are eaten up by needs we did not even know we had until we saw advertisements. Make-believe needs fill up our lives. Now, what is the reality check? You know, for ourselves, we say we are actually find ourselves surrounded. We try to buy a life for ourselves, and we find ourselves isolated from others, surrounded by the piles of stuff we have accumulated. That's the reality check. So the the comfortable church, our society, personal lives, did we really think we could get rid of the sun and keep everything? What were we thinking? Unbelievable. But there's something more unbelievable yet to come. Why would the vineyard order owner actually send his own son, knowing what was likely to happen? We do have a track record here. Why would he do this? I've got to tell you, there is no rational explanation. None. And a great philosopher, a Frenchman, of course, Les Pascal, uh, said famously, the heart has its own reasons. Which reason doesn't understand? What does that mean in plain English? Love does crazy things. Serious, that's what it means. What's the reason? There's no rational reason. Love does crazy things. History in our experience is filled with examples. Who doesn't know someone who's left a promising career, family, community, etc., to be with the person they loved at the other side of the country, the other side of the world? Why would they give that all up? Love does crazy things. What about adult children who take some of the best years of their life to take care of aging or ill parents? Years they'll never recover. And knowing that, why would they do that? Well, love does crazy things. Dramatic things like, on the Titanic, famously, um, Ida Strauss refused to get on the lifeboat, with her, you know, leave her husband behind. She didn't want to be separated from her husband. Why would she do that? Because love does crazy things. So something about this parable, it's so believable, it's unbelievable, twice. But you know how they say truth is stranger than fiction? This is a true story. It's the story of the cross. It's a true story. John summarized in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And this wasn't people who welcomed him, people who he knew would crucify him. He came to the world for that purpose, but he still sent him. Why would God do that? Because love does crazy things. You see, God's not a landlord in our story. He's basically a suitor. He's a groom coming for his bride. That's what it is. He doesn't want our stuff, he wants us. You know, it's interesting. Right after this parable, we have another parable. It's the story of people who are trying to trap Jesus, get him in political problems, and they said, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Okay, now everyone knew in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, It says that we're created in the actual image of God. Literally, we are literally in the image of God. So what does Jesus say? He says when people, said, give me a coin if it's lawful to pay the taxes. You know, you can tell what something something belongs to someone, you see the image. He says, whose image is this? And they said, well, Caesar. He said, of course. He said, well, give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give God what belongs to God. What's the image that belongs to God? Us, not our stuff. It's us. That's what he wants. So what fruit of the vineyard does God actually seek? We all know this. All of us have loved someone. And when we love someone, what's the only response we want? Love in return. There is no other acceptable response to love. That's all we want. That's why Jesus said, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. It's that simple. Nothing else will do. That's all he wants, but nothing else will do. And there's something that goes with that. If we love someone, we love the people they love. So as Jesus said there's a second commandment just like it. He says you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Because he loves them, we will love them. He says that's the entire law and the prophets. That's all there is. How do we respond to love? We love God, and we love the people God loves. Jesus said this is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, next week is Palm Sunday. We're about to start Holy Week, a very special time of pilgrimage. And again, it's not just a time of memory. It's a time of remembrance. And we've talked about this. In the Old Testament, the word remember has a very powerful sense. It doesn't mean thinking back fondly. It means making a past promise, a present reality. When God remembered Israel, it wasn't like, oh, who was I forgetting? God took action. He'd always promised to be there, and this is the moment where that happens. When he remembered Sarah, when God remembers something happens. In Holy Week, we will remember the mystery of the cross. We will enter in. We're not thinking back lovingly or fondly. We're going to actually enter into that mystery. We will actually meet the son coming to his vineyard. So when we meet the son next week, or this week, we meet him here at the table today. Coming, what is he seeking? The fruits of the vineyard. We nothing less, nothing more, nothing less than our love, a response of love. What are we going to do? Well, let us pray with God's grace that we will welcome him with the only thing he wants, our love. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation.